to thank you very much for inviting me. And it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, we are, look here, Tony. I wonder if I could sit cross legs here. Okay. Uh, hold that. Hope nothing embarrassing happens here. There we go. So, um, <coughs> Prabhupada initiated me in um, early 1970 in Los Angeles and performed the fire sacrifice. And uh, then soon after that, he called for me. He heard that, that I was doing certain things in Berkeley, in the Berkeley Temple. He called and said he wanted to see me. And uh, because I was preaching in a particular way, perhaps the first disciple of Prabhupada sort of followed his way of preaching, quoting Sanskrit slokas and so so Prabhupada was very pleased, and he, he sent word that I should come down and see him. So um, Prabhupada had the amazing ability to, well, he, first of all, his first amazing ability was that he was a pure devotee. So Prabhupada could, of course, see everyone as a spirit soul. It, what was it like to sit in front of Prabhupada? It, it felt like you were being... Um, that someone was actually seeing right past all the layers of false ego and seeing directly in seeing you as you really are. And so in Prabhupada's presence, we could begin to see ourselves. In the, in the Bhagavad Gita, <clears throat> chapter 4, text uh, 34, that famous verse uh, where Krishna says, Tadvidhi, know that or learn that. This is the imperative form of the verb vid, to know from which we get the word Veda, knowledge. And of course, from the Sanskrit root vid or wit, we have English words like wit, which means intelligence, or the German wissen, which means to know, or the word video, or the Latin vedere, to see. Vision also comes from the same root. So, so if you read Bhagavad Gita, you find that Krishna often talks about knowing in terms of seeing. It's not just academic knowledge. I can bite the hand that feeds me here. It's not just it's not just academic knowledge, uh, but it's actually seeing Krishna. Therefore, for example, Krishna says, "Tadvidhi, know that or learn that." Tadvidhi uh, pranipatena by submission. The word pranipata. The Sanskrit words are very interesting. Uh, we should learn the truth by submission. Uh, pra in Sanskrit means forth. Or forward and knee is down so, and pata is falling so literally falling forward and down so the, the word actually describes the action of offering obeisances so krishna says tadvidhi panipatena pari prashnena <clears throat> pari in sanskrit of course we have in english as pari peri like perimeter the greek peri which means the same thing around peri means around the perimeter uh even meter uh, even meter, is, of course, is from Sanskrit because you have the Sanskrit matra, which is English metric. So pari perimeter, peri meter is just Sanskrit uh, pari matra. So, so the word, the prefix pari in Sanskrit, which means around, is used in this uh, often in the sense of completely, 
In other words, all around. Just like they say someone's an all-around athlete, it means a complete athlete. So in Prashna's question, so Pari Prashna uh, means thoroughly questioning. Not frivolous questions, not like using the guru just kind of satisfy all of your um, sort of idle curiosity. But, but asking significant questions, questions you must have answered to advance in Krishna consciousness or to clear one's doubts away. And actually doubting at a certain stage is a sign of intelligence. In the Bhagavatam, in the third canto, uh, in the Sankhya Yoga teaching of Kapila Muni to his mother Devahuti, uh, the first symptom of intelligence, buddhi, the first symptom of intelligence is sanshaya, doubt. For example, if, if we never doubted material life, none of us would be here. But of course, just as there is rational faith and blind faith, there's also blind doubt. There's rational doubt and there's blind doubt. So in terms of one's reasonable doubts, uh, one should remove them by uh, presenting you know, necessary questions to the guru. And that's called pariprasna. So tadvidhi pranipatena pariprasnena sevaya and by service. In other words, you get what you pay for. So one should not simply bother the guru with all one's questions and everything and not offer service. There should be, and of course it's not a business, being a guru is not a business, uh, at least not for a real guru. But the idea is that um, of reciprocation, even God reciprocates. Reciprocation is natural. It's actually the basic principle that makes the universe go round, literally. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, as people surrender to me or approach me, uh, precisely in that, in that way, to that extent, I accept them, I reciprocate with them. So Krishna himself, uh, Krishna himself, you want to come in? Everyone come a little forward. So Krishna himself follows this principle of reciprocation. Also Krishna, another very significant discussion of reciprocation is found in chapter three of Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna explains that um, the demigods, Krishna's servants, are providing natural resources to us. And Krishna says, Yo bhunte apradayai bhyo. No, apradayai bhyo, yo bhunte stenaiva saha. One who enjoys, for example, the rain, makes food grow. You can't eat styrofoam or plastic or even uh, computer parts. So the rain comes down, food grows, we eat and, and, and we live and flourish. So Krishna says, Yo bhunte. One who enjoys these things, Tire datan, these things which are datan, which are given by Krishna's representatives, tire datan, apradayaibyo, if you don't offer back, we are receiving all these resources, it would be extremely naive to think that the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food that grows just happens to be there. This is actually quite an unintelligent idea, although it's very popular nowadays, but then again, 
that's consistent with all the other unintelligent things going on. So Krishna says, Tair Datan, Apradai one who does not offer back, Yobhungte, and enjoys it, stay naiva, is nothing but a thief. So Krishna calls this, this cycle of reciprocation, Anad, Bhavanti, Bhutani, Parjan, and so on. The rain falls, the grains grow, human beings or, or creatures flourish. Krishna calls this a pravarti chakram. Even pravarti, which is a very interesting word. Uh, if any of you know Sanskrit, pravarti is the, obviously the neuter singular, passive, causative, past participle of pravrit. So now that's all clear. You won't lose, lose sleep over that. So what that literally means, I mean, what that literally means is Abram, that a, a, a wheel, a chakra, chakra can mean a wheel, it can also mean a cycle, anything, you know, that turns in that shape. So Krishna says that a, a, a wheel or a cycle has been made to turn. That's what it literally means. A wheel has been made to turn. Has thus been made to turn. And Avam Pravarti, that Nanu Varti Atihaja, and one who does not keep the wheel turning. That's literally what it means. One who does not keep the cycle turning. Nanu Aghayur, their Ayur, like Ayurveda, which means their duration of life, is Agha, is, is, is an offense. It's an offense to the universe. Their, their duration of life is an offense to the universe. So, um, so this pravartitam chakram, this wheel that has been made to turn, and nanuvartiatiha, again the causative anuvrit, uh, one who does not keep the wheel turning, aghayur, their ayur, their duration of life is agha, an offense, and indriyaramo because they are simply trying to gratify their own senses. So. Um, so that's another example of reciprocity being at the center of how the universe works. I mean, if you think about justice, what is the essence of justice? Is that everybody gets what they deserve, whether it's reward or punishment? I think if you study the, the you know the philosophy of justice, the Western philosophical tradition, or frankly the Bhagavad Gita, you'll find that the essence of justice is that people get what they actually deserve and don't get what they don't deserve. So think about relationships between men and women, men and women between uh, friendship, any kind of relationship. There has to be reciprocity. There's a great song, there's an old song, you may remember this, called uh, Since I Fell For You, Lenny Welch. If you just give love and never get love, <laughs> you'd better let love depart. Anyway, it's a great old song from the 60s. So in a relationship, if someone is you know, if you're giving more than you're getting, obviously, if it's your child, that's the nature of raising children. But in an intimate relationship, in a friendship, in a conjugal relationship, there has to be rest of roughly reciprocity. Otherwise, people feel they're being exploited. And in fact, they are. So whether it's in terms of romantic relationships, friendship, whether it's, uh, you know, how Krishna says he deals with souls, whether it's the what you call the cosmic economy that Krishna describes in Bhagavad Gita, how uh, necessary goods are provided 
to living beings and, and, and the role of sacrifice in this sort of cosmic cycle, cosmic economy. And so at all levels, economic, I mean, I mean, think of what economic justice is. If you pay a certain amount of money and don't get what you paid for, you feel cheated. And why? Because it wasn't a fair reciprocation. So reciprocity is really at the heart of just how life works when it's working, let's say, civilized life. So getting back to the verse we were talking about in Bhagavad Gita 434, uh, the sevaya, the, the idea that when one approaches uh, a guru or um, just someone who can teach you something worth learning, then uh, there should be service. I remember that when I, I was, of course, immersed in the Hare Krishna movement for many years, and I, I, at a certain point I went back to college, and uh, I guess you could say academically I was a late, late bloomer. Anyway, I remember I, I, I went back to finish up my undergraduate degree at UCLA, and um, I was fresh, you know, just all I knew, I'd known for years was just this culture, this Vaishnav culture we live in, and so I was in a Greek philosophy class, I was, always had a inclination for Western philosophical tradition. So I was in a, I was in a philosophy class and um, the teacher was, he was a little elderly. In fact, I think he had technically retired, but then they brought him back to teach a course because they couldn't afford to hire someone, I guess, I mean, a, a permanent person. So at one point he, there was a need to open the window and this was sort of an elderly gentleman with some little breathing device. That is, your indication that we should all actually i didn't turn off my cell phone <laughs> but thank you for taking the route so we'll have the uh, collective cell phone deactivation ritual so um he went to, and he sort of not hobbled i, I don't want to over dramatize this but he made his way over to the back room to, to, I think, I don't know, open or close a window. And it just, it really struck me in my sort of, uh, you know, ashram-based naivete. It really struck me that none of the students, we were all, you know, they were all, it was all students were young. And no one just stood up and said, oh, I'll take care of that. Here's some elderly guy. And th there was just no culture. There was no cu culture of serving the teacher. There was no, it just, that, of course, it's America. I remember... I have a friend, uh, uh, Gandhi, who, who um, teaches at UC Santa Barbara. And uh, we were visiting her one time, and so I just happened to notice on a table a little book that she had, which was a book that the university, University of California, Santa Barbara, a book that they give to teachers there who come from other countries. And the book that said, um, if you come from another country and you're teaching here, you may be somewhat surprised at the behavior of your students. <laughs> and basically, with just you know, with just extraordinary concern for politically politically correct language and talking around, it, basically the idea was that your American students may be barbaric and vulgar and rude and disrespectful, but um, but of course they tried to say it in, in a very nice way, as if it were simply you know a, di a different kind of cultural nuance. But anyway, in the Bhagavad Gita 434, Krishna says that one should serve. And then Krishna says, Upadekshanti te jnanam jnaninas tattva darshina. It's actually in the plural. That 
they will instruct you. They will teach you. Upadekshanti. This is the just the simple plural verb from Upadesha. If you know Upadeshamrita, this is the verb. Upadekshanti. They will instruct. They will teach you. Upadekshanti te gyanam. They will teach you knowledge. Uh, those who have knowledge. Now this may sound a little tautological, like like it's saying like two equals two, a thing equals itself. But actually, Krishna's making a point. If you look at the, the Sanskrit composition of the Bhagavad Gita, the precise juxtaposition of words is very significant. So Krishna says, Upadekshanti te jnanam jnaninas, which means, uh, you, yeah, trying to put it in English to, to, to you know sort of keep the same effect, uh, those who have knowledge, knowledge will teach. Those who have knowledge, knowledge will teach. It's sort of tautological, but it's still a good point because a lot of times people try to teach things and it's clear they don't really understand what they're talking about. So Krishna says they, that they will teach knowledge, uh, those who have knowledge, knowledge will teach. Upadekshanti te gyanam gyanis. And then Krishna further clarifies or, or that those who have knowledge are tattva darshina, seers of the truth. Seers of the truth. And again, throughout the Bhagavad Gita, you you have this uh, recurring uh, language where to know is to see. You To really know things, you see them. You actually see it. it it's not just memorizing something. And so um, when Krishna says those seers of the truth, Tattva the specific word he uses for truth is significant. Because there are various words in Sanskrit for truth. For example, if you just mean something you know which is true and not false, that you'd use a different word. The word would be satyam. It's just like in India, satyam eva jayate, truth alone conquers, which is sort of the, the motto of India, isn't it? Satyam eva jayate. So, so that's satyam, something which is, which is true and not false, a truth. And then there's another, of course, uh, old Sanskrit word for truth, which is ritta, or urta, uh, to do the correct vowel R, which basically hardly anyone on earth does. But anyway, urtham, or ritham, like for example, uh, Arjun says to Krishna, a very dramatic moment of the Bhagavad Gita, sarvameta dritangmanye, I consider all this to be true, to be true. Janmang vadasi keshva, that which you are telling me, keshava. So this is when Arjun really opens up and says, everything you're telling me, I consider to be true. So that's the word rhythm, which can be truth in the sense of a cosmic <laughs> principle or, or some true principle of the universe. But the word tatwa, when Krishna taught, and since there's gonna be initiation today, uh, this is what Krishna is actually saying in that famous Gita verse 434, describing how one approaches uh, enlightened people or learned people who know the truth. And so the word for tattva that Krishna uses, wait, okay, back up. The word for truth Krishna uses is tattva. Now I'll explain what the word tattva means. Tat, if you just add an H as English, that. It's a demonstrative, it's the demonstrative pronoun that. Somehow picked up an H in English. So that, now a, de a demonstrative pronoun, you could say by definition, I mean, grammatically functions to indicate something which can actually be demonstrated. Otherwise, you wouldn't call it a demonstrative pronoun. So in sort of 
shorthand, like 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 in Sanskrit philosophical jargon, you could say. Um, tut comes to mean a real thing, because you can't demonstrate something which isn't real. For and so it's used in that way, kind of in this very uh, terse form. For example, in the well-known expression "Om Tat Sat." So in the expression "Om Tat Sat," Tut is used as that sort of like a, a, a um, quintessential demonstrative pronoun that points out a real thing. Uh, Hare Krishna, stay back there. So, yeah, thank you. Rather than walking across the room in the middle of that thing. Hare Krishna. So, because it's normal in this kind of program to walk across the room. So, so tut means that. Tut means that. And twum, the word twum means uh, the quality of having the quality of being something. Or in English, for example, we have the suffix ness, N-E-S-S, like thatness, which means a state of being that. So that's something like what twam is in Sanskrit. And um, so tatwam means the state of being a real thing. Tatwam. And therefore, it is a... Tatwam is often used to indicate a, a fundamental ontological category. In other words, a category of real thing. So it's in that sense that, for example, we have the term jiva tatwa. Jiva tatwa, jiva, of course, means life. I mean, if you just change the J to V, it's well-known Latin, you know, viva, viva. Actually, just like they say viva, viva, in Sanskrit, they say jiva, jiva. So anyway... Uh, all glories to the European language family. So, um, so therefore, jiva tatwa means a fundamental category of real thing, which is a living being, a soul. So when you say jiva, you, it just means some living being. But if you say jiva tatwa, it's the category of all living things, of all jivas, who are not God. Or, for example, Vishnu Tattva, which means uh, the category of God. God is a, uh, I guess it's lonely at the top, but... So Vishnu Tattva, uh, and of course there are many expansions we know of Krishna, that um, Anadi, Mananta, that, uh, what is that verse that... Um, uh, Advaita Machuta Manadi Mananta Rupam. Uh, that God is one, literally advaitam, non-dual. God is one and achutam, infallible, and yet uh, advaitam, achutam, anadim, beginningless, but anantarupam, with infinite forms, literally endless forms. Ant, end, with endless forms. So Vishnu Tattva indicates not merely this or that form of God, such as Krishna or Rama and so on, but the category, that ontological category of God. So, and then of course, Prakriti Tattva. Prakriti Tattva is another fundamental category, which is physical nature. What we call material nature. So these are often called the Tattva Triads, or the triad, 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 the three fundamental categories of real things. And, you know, with the principle of parsimony, in other words, that whether it's in physics or philosophy, the simplest explanation is the most elegant if it actually explains. I mean, if you can explain, say, in physics, if you can explain something with one equation, 
that's much better than let's say 79 equations which just explain the same thing so that's called the Occam's razor the principle of parsimony so really um, everything can be explained if you look at the philosophy of Bhagavad Gita uh, one can explain everything in the universe through three ontological categories there is material nature there are living beings who are not material and there's God those are, those are the three fundamental categories of real things and Sankhya Sankhya philosophy Krishna uses the word Sankhya in Bhagavad Gita in general to indicate philosophy for example Krishna says in chapter 5 Sankhya Jogao Pratad Bala Pravadantina Pandita that only literally the childish it's a way of saying people like immature thinkers Bala which means child so Krishna it's, it's a way in Sanskrit of saying those who are immature childish so only the childish claim pravadanti vadanti means to state and then pravadanti has something that means like to just like vocate you know to, to speak and then advocate so pravadanti means to claim something so Krishna says that only the childish claim or advocate that Sankhya and yoga are different philosophy and practice because if you stick to one of them really well you'll get the benefit of the both in other words if you're a very good practitioner serious sincere practitioner then you'll eventually understand and if you're a very serious let's say student really inquiring into the knowledge that will lead you to a good practice and the word Sankhya the reason I mention this is because Sankhya the word Krishna often uses for philosophy is from the word Sankhya which means number in Sanskrit and so therefore Sankhya means enumerating and again if you look in the third canto of the Bhagavatam at how Kapila Muni explains Sankhya philosophy it's clear that it, it's an attempt to successful attempt it's an attempt to enumerate all the fundamental entities that actually exist so now going back to the verse in 434 of Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says that um, you that those who have knowledge knowledge will teach you and they are seers of tatwa in other words they see they understand all the fundamental categories of real things that's the idea now uh, it's interesting because in, in the pranam mantra in, in, in the in the mantra that Prabhupada wrote and, and gave to us uh, to offer to him, uh, he he's we have this line that nirvishesha shunyavadi paschatyadeshatarine, saving the Western countries from impersonalism and voidism. The Sanskrit word which we translate as impersonalism is actually nirvishesha. The word vishesha in Sanskrit means distinction, like vishishta means distinguished. So vishesha means distinction. Near means without, like nirvana, near this, near that. So near means without. So nirvishesha means not making proper distinctions. And so impersonalism, from this point of view, is precisely failing to make the proper distinctions between tattvas. So for example, if someone thinks that Krishna has a material body, that's confusing prakriti tattva with ishvara tattva. It's confusing the category of material nature with the category of God. Or if, if someone takes their own material body to be the self rather than the eternal soul, again, it's a, it's a category mistake. It's a category mistake uh, confusing jiva, the individual soul, with nature, material nature. Or if someone thinks I am God, which is 
In other words, if someone kind of is like Donald Trump. <laughs> so, so if someone thinks that I am God, then, uh, again, it's a category mistake. It's confusing Ishwar and Tatva. So what Krishna says is you, that you can learn knowledge from people who actually understand the three fundamental categories of real things. They know the difference between God, individual souls, and material nature. So if someone actually understands these things very well, then that person is called Tatva Darshi. If you actually see it, you really understand it. Tatva Darshi. <coughs> You want some water? Now, as far as what it means to see the truth, I, I sometimes mention uh, that there is philosophical atheism, but then there's psychological atheism. Philosophical atheism means someone just declares, I don't believe in God, or I claim there's no God, whatever. Psychological atheism is a state where one may be a philosophical theist, but psychologically, one is very self-centered and a person actually considers themselves to be the most important person in any room they happen to be in. So if in one's practical life one is self-centered, because to think, you're, to think I'm the center of reality is basically to think I'm the supreme being. So to really see these tattvas means that one has to have realization, sometimes called in the Gita, jnana and vijnanam. So, um, so we approach enlightened people or just those who have knowledge, those who have realized the knowledge or see the truth to become completely clear on tattva. Because if I really understand profoundly that I'm not God, if I really understand that, I mean, it is kind of seductive to think that I am the greatest person. Although it's obviously delusional. Well, some people, I mean, some people can see that it's delusional. Some people, as I've said, can't quite see that. But so to really see it, to really see myself as a tiny soul or as a servant of God, to really see that nature is God's energy. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna explains in Bhagavad Gita that material nature and souls are both my energy. To really see that. Which explains, by the way, why, as Krishna said, Krishna has a specific, you could say, uh, Parmenidean. Uh, if you know the Parmenides, the pre-Socratic Greek philosopher, a concept of what it means to be eternal. So, Krishna says that never was there a time, never did I not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, because there are other ideas. What you could, there's something called, you know, there's sort of like a halfway eternality, where we didn't exist before, we were created from nothing which Parmenides would go crazy over. He would say that's impossible. But anyway, so to say that we were created out of nothing, but now we'll exist forever once we, you know, in heaven or hell, now that we've begun to exist. But, uh, well, I'll tell you what Parmenides says about that, actually. Uh, so Plato has a, actually a dialogue called the Parmenides. Parmenides makes the point that when we say something comes from nothing, uh, it's actually a, an improper use of language. And I'll explain what he means by that. In English, since we're speaking English, we could do this in any language. But in English, there is a word, nothing. Nothing is an English word. And so it positively exists as a word, as much as the word something. So even though linguistically, 
nothing exists, it doesn't refer to anything. It's a word with no reference. Of course, it's, it, it, it's the via negativa. It's a negative definition. In fact, the word nothing specifically means there's no thing. There's nothing there. So Parmenides says, how can, how can something come from nothing? There's no such thing as nothing. It exists positively as a word that doesn't refer to anything. There's nothing to come from. And if you say that something merges into nothing, there is no such thing. It's not that nothing is like some kind of you know gassy cloud or something. <laughs> I mean, there's no such thing as nothing to merge into. So therefore, Parmenides says, agreeing with, with Krishna in the Gita, that if something exists, it has always existed. Although Krishna makes a distinction that material things, although they always exist, and this is, of course, Aristotle, the idea of substance. If you think of the word substance, which means to stand below, like, let's say, my shirt, which is obviously extremely stylish, this uh, Hare Krishna saffron shirt. So, although now, I thought I'd put on my best stuff to come here. So, so you can see this shirt, you can see this shirt, but it's really just energy. And, you know, the particular, what Krishna would call uh, uh, guna vikara, vikara and sagu, that, that this shirt is a particular transformation of energy, and therefore it has certain gunas, certain qualities, like its color, its texture, and, uh, and you know, we can go on and make a list of all the physical, perceptible qualities of the shirt. So Krishna says that a particular vikara, a particular transformation, like this shirt, is obviously temporary. But the energy underlying this, the actual energy itself, has always existed. And Aristotle gets at this with the word substance, that which stands below the appearance of something, that which stands beneath the mere appearance. So, uh, and of course, stand, stand is just Sanskrit stana, obviously. So, um, but Christ, so that's the difference. Krishna says that uh, Purusha, both physical nature and souls have always existed. The difference is that nature is constantly being transformed into different shapes and qualities and so on, whereas a soul isn't. Physical nature is transformed, whereas souls, the word Krishna uses, is abritam. Their souls are covered. It's like if you, for example, let's say you drop a diamond into mud. And then you pick it up, you know the value of the diamond, you pick it up and the diamond is covered by mud. But if you clean it off, the diamond's still there. So that's the analogy, which I'm giving, Krishna has given, for the soul. The soul is covered and simply needs to be discovered or uncovered. Whereas, let's say you take a diamond and actually grind it into powder and mix the powder with all kinds of other chemicals, I mean, it's really no more diamond. The diamond's really gone. It's like the Humpty Dumpty effect. So, but the soul is never transformed into something else. It can simply be covered and uncovered. So, to know all these things is, is knowledge. This is to be Tattva Darshi. So initiation, may I'll, uh, I'll speak briefly about what this initiation is about. Um, well, it's a very, uh, it's a very um, joyful event. The uh, the candidate or the victim 
is um, <laughs> Govinda Sundara, whom I, I named you, doesn't it? I named him when he was born. His mother, where's Glenny? There's his mother, Dainashina, who is a, a nurse right now in, in Gainesville, the University Hospital in Gainesville, and uh, originally from Brazil. And, and I was in charge there in Brazil for a while. So Govinda Sundara is a Vaishnava from his birth. And, uh, and he has a wonderful mother who's uh, really set an ideal example of what it means to be a devotee mother, uh, most of the time raising him alone. And now he, uh, he turned out very well. He went, to, he did very well at University of Florida. He was admitted into one of the most prestigious schools of architecture at Berkeley. And now he's an architect here in Austin. And his wife, Lilananda. Yeah. Oh, right in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> the most obvious things always elude you. So yes, Lilananda is originally from Australia. And uh, she's a brilliant young lady. And uh, so they've come here to help Krishna consciousness in Austin. They're both exemplary devotees. There's a Vaita Charya back there, the leader of ISKCON San Antonio. My old friend. So, um, I had the good fortune of spending a lot of time with Prabhupada. And in retrospect, um, I mean, everyone, Krishna, everyone who approached Prabhupada uh, received extraordinary blessings. But I think in a sense, if, if I look back on my life, uh, I can see what Krishna was doing. I, you know, you all know the stories of Prabhupada began the Hare Krishna movement in New York, 26 Second Avenue. And um, I did not meet Prabhupada there. I was... From California. I still am from, I guess for the rest of my life I will be from California. But um, I was born in Los Angeles and I joined the Hare Krishna movement uh, in 1969. Obviously at an extremely young age, a natural young age, but I'm just joking. So <laughs> what's interesting is that um, the movement in New York, I mean, you know, the, those wonderful stories we read about in all the Prabhupada biographies like Lilamrita. But the real, how should I put it, sort of like, a, well, I don't want to use pejoratives like aggressive, overbearing, but the real enthusiastic, the real enthusiastic uh, outreach programs, the Sankirtan movement of Lord Chaitanya, really, uh, um, caught fire on the West Coast. I mean, that's just the history. You can read about it. Although I had to, 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 to be fair here, probably perhaps the, the, the central figure in Prabhupada's service was Tamal Krishna Goswami, who, of course, was from New York. So, but of course, half people from California are new, from New York anyway. So, but in, in California, because there was, a, there was a certain spirit, e even if you look at the counterculture, you know, the hippie movements and the revolutionary movements, if you sort of compare the East and West Coast, I mean, I'm going to start to sound very chauvinistic here. But anyway, 
there, there was a certain spirit in California, and, and that's really where the Sankirtan movement, the distribu distribution of books, the enthusiastic public chanting really took off in uh, Vishnu Jana and Madhavis and other great Sankirtan leaders. So when I joined in 1969, three years after Prabhupada incorporated ISKCON, I joined a movement which, which really had that spirit. It wasn't just, it wasn't Swamiji in New York, and it was really that spirit. And so, as I say, I took it in with my you know, mother's milk. I mean, so from the very beginning of my tenure in the Hare Krishna movement, I joined a movement which was sort of electrified by the spirit of, of, of trying to save the world, which of course, we were, we, don't, we were already trying to do that in the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam movement, all that. I was in Berkeley, we were already trying to transform the world and we just like made that little adjustment. <laughs> that, oh, you do it through Krishna consciousness. So, so I mean, I mentioned this because from the very beginning, my relationship with Prabhupada, especially in 1972, when I took sannyas, which was remarkable since I physiologically, I, I, I took sannyas, renounced order, a few years before my brain even matured. I mean, I had a full <laughs> human brain because I was a you know, 23 year old male. So I took sannyas and um, but so from the very beginning, from the very beginning when I took sannyas, Prabhupada, he, he encouraged us so strongly to go out and make a difference, to go out and change the world. And that was Prabhupada. I remember one time we were sitting in Prabhupada's garden in Los Angeles in the evening. Of course, I was from Los Angeles, and, and in fact, um, it, it was sort of remarkable, Krishna Range, because when I took sannyas, the renounced order, and the devotees told me, oh, there's, you know, there's a place we know where we can get bamboo to make your staff, your dunda. And then they drove me to my high school gym field. <laughs> so I, th I thought, wow, what symbolism. You know, my first dunda, my first sannyas staff is made from bamboo from my high school gym field. And uh, when I would drive in the car with Prabhupada, I would always, usually I'd, I'd be in the car with Prabhupada and we'd drive to take his walks. And... He, he had the system where one day he would go to Rancho Park, you know where that is in Cheviot Hills in Los Angeles. And then one day he would go to Venice Beach. And it was amazing because Cheviot Hills, Rancho Park was my neighborhood park. And so I used to literally walk with Prabhupada over my Little League baseball diamonds and, um, you know, past the municipal swimming pool where we used to go, I took swimming lessons and past the tennis courts where I played tennis. And, and even on the way to the park, we'd drive past all these houses where I went to parties when I was a kid. And... <laughs> dance the night away. So I, I felt it was kind of pro, you know, Krishna sort of recording over my past and sort of spiritualizing my past. But so anyway, one time we were sitting in Prabhupada's garden with him and um, and then Venice Beach, Prabhupada would go to Venice Beach, which is where my mother used to take me when I was a little kid to the beach in the summer. So uh, I mean, one time we were sitting with Prabhupada in his garden one evening and Prabhupada looked at it, looked at me and the other was there and he said, he said, what is the use of your being American if you don't do something wonderful? Because Prabhupada came from India and, you know, the globalization, Prabhupada talks about globalization actually in the preface of the Bhagavatam. He explicitly talks about it, so he saw it coming. But coming from India and coming from a poor part of India, actually, um, and America was a wonder. And Prabhupada used to say that. He used to say that, uh, he used to say that, uh, he had, had this clever little thing, he would say that 
He said, in America, there's so many amazing things, so many wonderful things. He said, but without God, without Krishna, they're just zeros. So, but if you put the one of God, the one of Krishna before these zeros, it becomes a large number. Now, I think sometimes devotees forget their grammar school math. Because zero is not always zero. Zero can be a huge number. It can be a placeholder. For example, if you have 10,000 and you add one more zero to the right of the one, that zero actually has a value of 90,000. The next zero is 900,000. The next zero is 9 million, and so on. So when Prabhupada said these are zeros without Krishna, but they become a, a, a big number with Krishna, it means there is great intrinsic value in this country. Prabhupada did not tell us to, you know, I don't know, get like a big U-Haul truck and haul out all the Western zeros and then haul in all the Eastern zeros and then, you know, put the one up, which is, it's actually not what he asked us to do. He just, he said, just put the one up. So we don't need to triple Prabhupada's, the task he gave us. Anyway, so, so for Prabhupada, America was a wonder, but although Prabhupada was an enlightened soul, so we understood that, you know, this is, it's a wonder, but it's a material wonder, and, and, and there's a need for God here. There's a need for Krishna. But still, I mean, Prabhupada, how should I put it? You know, Prabhupada would speak in different ways. He also had his sort of his little cucumber story, where apparently, anyone here speak Bengali? No? Little bit. But apparently in Bengali, the word for cucumber and the word for diamond are similar. They're similar words. And so there's a saying that if you sell cucumbers, you'll get many customers. If you sell diamond, there are few customers. And Prabhupada would use this little story because he was sending his disciples all over the world to preach, literally all over the world. And every day he would get at least one or two you know, letters from someone saying that Prabhupada, no one's coming, no one's joining. And, and I saw probably, I mean, I can't count how many times I saw this, even in Prabhupada's presence, where he had to cheer up and encourage his kids. No, don't worry about it. You know, we don't care. We're, we're, we're selling diamonds. You can't expect many customers and so on. So Prabhupada used that to kind of cheer up and encourage uh, disciples whose uh, enthusiasm was drooping a little bit. However, Prabhupada never said that to me. Somehow or other, I mean, I mean I'm not bragging here, I hope. I'm not bragging, but it's a fact that, that from the beginning, Prabhupada, when I took sannyas, and we, we got extraordinary results. In fact, Prabhupada, I was traveling with Satsarupa Maharaj and, uh, in 72, and Prabhupada talked about our program in Vrindavan. He was giving the class, Nectar Devotion class in Vrindavan, and he specifically mentioned our program of traveling around to American universities. He said he's really happy with that. And then in 1974, Prabhupada called me to his room and asked me to take charge of Latin America, and things really boomed there. You know, it was just, it, it just, we had explosive growth in Latin America. And so when I went into Prabhupada's room, he didn't talk about cucumbers and diamonds. When I would go into Prabhupada's room, he would just say, like, give me the good news. You know, how many temples have you opened? How many books were distributed? How many new members? He was like, he was really enthusiastic. It was like a father-son business. And he was, he was enthusiastic. He was really appreciative. And so in my relationship with Prabhupada, for example, one time I was sitting with Prabhupada in his garden, and he asked me if his books were in libraries and bookstores. And I tried to explain to Prabhupada that, um, well, not, not so much because, you know, no one's really going to check your books out of a library 
or you know, just buy them in a bookstore. And so Prabhupada, you know, that was the wrong answer for Prabhupada. So I saw what he really wanted. So I just told him, we'll take care of it. So let me start, you know, I started the BBT library party. And um, and then we, you know, Prabhupada's books eventually got into all, you know, all the major university libraries and so on. So, what's that? Do you want to sit down in the chair? Sounds great. What a nice invitation. Thank you. Sure. I guess that's uh, near home plate. Thank you. The reason I'm mentioning these things is because Prabhupada really had serious dreams and hopes of transforming this world. I want to say another thing about Prabhupada's strategy. Prabhupada had a general strategy and a specific strategy for spreading Krishna consciousness. The general strategy was kind of like the Hail Mary play in football. You just everybody go long and throw the ball. Yeah. In the sense that Prabhupada asked all of his, just, you know, or many disciples just, to, you know, to go to Africa, to go to Australia, to go all over America, Europe, Asia. He just sent, you know, anyone who was willing, you know, Prabhupada urged them, go out and try to spread this movement. So that was just a general strategy. Everyone go out, you know, wh wherever your assignment is, wherever your place is, try to do the best you can. But Prabhupada had a sp specific strategy. A specific strategy. Because he was very aware of what was going on in the world. Prabhupada was, the very fact that when Prabhupada sailed to America and the Jaladuta, the fact that he sailed past London and kept coming to New York, that itself startled everyone in his guru's mission. You have to remember that Prabhupada lived the first 51 years of his life. The first 51 years of his life as a subject of the British Empire. And so Prabhupada grew up and was a young adult and became middle-aged in a world which was entirely London-centric. If you wanted to go to the West, there was only one city you would go to, and that was London. And in fact, when Prabhupada's guru sent a few of his disciples to the West, and it didn't really turn out for various reasons, um, they went to London. There was, there was no other place to go. Prabhupada understood that the world had changed, and London, you know, obviously after World War II, if you look at Prabhupada's Back to Godhead magazines, even back in the 40s, this just a sheet. It wasn't even a magazine. It was just a sheet. Interestingly, a lot of the articles are about current political affairs. It's obvious that Prabhupada was following intelligently what was going on in the world. I mean, after all, he lived through two world wars, which England kindly, you know, brought India into. <laughs> Didn't want them to miss it. So... So Prabhupada went through two world wars in which it wasn't clear who was going to win. Prabhupada was in Calcutta when Calcutta was bombed, I think, by the Japanese. So, you know, to have your city bombed is, you know, it can ruin your whole day. So Prabhupada, I mean, he really understood the world. And that's why he did not take a boat for London. He went to America because he knew there is a new world order. And at the center of it is America, not England. So 
that was very significant. Prabhupada came and I, I've written some essays, which you know are available if you want to read them. Uh, we have to keep Prabhupada in the center, but it's very important we keep all of Prabhupada in the center, that we not filter out a big bit of Prabhupada and then keep in the center of the part that we want to follow. So the real Prabhupada, and I've shown this in, in some papers I've written, they're posted on my website. Uh, we're going to be... So Prabhupada, let me, let me go step back a minute. In chapter 6 of the Nectar Devotion, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, Rupa Goswami makes a distinction between fundamental principles of Bhakti Yoga. These are the invariables. You can't mess with these things. If you mess with these principles, you void your spiritual warranty. <laughs> and then he says, now here's some principles which are secondary, or there are other things which are variable, and they're just details, according to time and place. Now, if we consider that things which are really variable details are fundamental principles, or if we consider fundamental principles to be variable details, we do not understand the spiritual science. The existence of a science helps no one if there's no scientist. For example, there's a medical science in the world, but in a particular situation, if there is no competent doctor, the fact that there is a medical science doesn't help anyone. So in the same way, the fact that there is a spiritual science, or the Prabhupada brought a spiritual science, will not save the world if there are not spiritual scientists. And I suggest the first thing we need to do is to make this crucial distinction between invariable fundamental principles and variable details, which often tend to be confused, to be perfectly honest, to things which are superficial, like dress, like recipes, like music style, in some people's minds become absolute fundamental principles of bhakti yoga, although they do not appear in Rupa Goswami's list. And Prabhupada talked a lot about that. And so what I'm trying to do in Krishna West is to, uh, what, what's the word, um, resuscitate, or bring back all these powerful statements from Prabhupada which have been forgotten, where Prabhupada actually gives us the flexibility and the agility we need to fit into the Western world and actually have an impact. Now, a great example of fitting into the Western world is the Hindu community. Because, as we know, uh, they've been extraordinarily successful in America, in Europe, and in other places. And this success was only possible, apart from the qualifications of the people that came, this success was only possible because the people that came, the Hindu community, knew how to adjust and fit in, not necessarily giving up their own spiritual principles, but how to fit in, to talk the language in whatever profession they were in, how to get the proper credentials, how to deal with people. Without doing that, the Indian community would not have the extraordinary success that it does have, obviously. So, um, Krishna West, and this gets back to the, also to the guru-disciple relationship. In my relationship with Prabhupada, it was very clear to me, Prabhupada made it very clear, 
that if I really wanted to please him, and I did, and he saw that, he wasn't like, um, you know, how uh, should I put artificially, you know, pressuring me, that I had to somehow or other find the ways and means to spread this mission in the Western world. And the truth is what works. If you look at the history of the great Acharyas, you find that when something, plan A, didn't work, and the world was continuing to, you know, go to hell in a handbasket, to use the cliche, then they would go to plan B. They would go to plan C. They would somehow or other find the way to reach people. If you were a doctor and you were trying to save a patient and you learned in medical school, well, person has these symptoms, you do this, and you, you provide that treatment and the patient's still dying, well, it's not my problem. That's what they told us to do in medical school. The point is, someone who's actually a dedicated medical practitioner will try everything possible to see if this patient can be saved. So in Prabhupada's specific strategy, Prabhupada's specific strategy for spiritualizing planet Earth depended on success in the Western world. Because that's just the way the world is now. If you look at world history, the West at different times was barbaric. Well, actually more than one time. But if you look at world history, uh, the West was not always prominent. For example, if you go back a few thousand years, and when the Roman Empire divided into East and West, the great centers of learning were in the East, not in the West. The Western Roman Empire was considered to be kind of like the, uh, you know, the Wild West. If you look at, um, say, the Renaissance, because we're so, you know, we're so centered in Western culture, we forget or we don't know that the Renaissance, which brought back or which brought us into the modern world, began in, in, in the Islamic world. If you go back a thousand years, the roles were exactly reversed. The sort of the, you know, the terrorists, kind of the wild terrorists were the Western Europeans. And the more urbane, more cosmopolitan, more liberal societies, the centers of learning were in the Islamic Empire. And then for various historical reasons we won't go into nowadays, it flipped. But apart from that, I mean, all, all the words like, you know, al in Arabic, you know, the, so alcohol, algebra, alkaline, because the Islamic world was, was the center of learning. And they actually uh, began the Renaissance, which then later spread to Europe. So this is, not, so what I'm giving you is not just, you know, Western chauvinism. Prabhupada, it's just the way the world is now. And culture is like water. It flows down. It doesn't flow up. In sociological terms, there are what you could call prestige cultures, cultures that have more status, and it tends to flow down. Therefore, we find India almost at the speed of light is being modernized, westernized. And, you know, everyone that ever goes to India, when they come back, they tell me they can't recognize the place. And so, <laughs> whereas... So at the present time, the Western world is the prestige culture. For example, if you go back to the time of Jesus, the prestige language was not English, it was Greek. That's why the New Testament was written in Greek, because that was the English of the time. And so um, Prabhupada knew that. So the chances of us Indianizing the Western world are very slim.
and I'm being generous there. I don't mean to say, I'm not talking about spiritual principles. I'm not talking about Krishna. I'm not talking about the process of bhakti yoga. I'm talking about superficial things. We're not talking about the essence. India, actually Bharat Varsha, has given this world this, this extraordinary civilization. Even if you look at third party witnesses, like for example, Megasthenes, the Greek ambassador who went to India about uh, two or 300 BC, E, politically correct. Um, he describes this amazing, he says that India is the only place he knows of in the world where there's no slavery. How, how people are treated, that you, you have this, where, where, where accomplished artists are, are subsidized by the government, so they're just free to do their arts, where there's practically no crime, you can just walk from one end of the subcontinent to the other with no fear. Strangers are never mistreated. There's a whole department of the government that guarantees that, that foreigners will never be exploited or, 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 or mistreated. There are hospitals for human beings and for animals. So you have this very, I mean, what other civilization came up with this doctrine of, of actually respecting all life, which in Western philosophical terms is sometimes called biocentrism, like the centrality of life itself. So, I mean, what other civilization came up with this? What, what other civilization took so seriously, took so seriously the idea of showing compassion to all living things? So, uh, and, and in terms of like Descartes, you know, Descartes wrote a book called The Meditations, which is kind of a big thing in Western philosophy. But as one great scholar, uh, Eliade of, of the 20th century at University of Chicago pointed out, depth psychology, like going into the deepest levels of psychology, really it began in India. If you look at the whole yoga culture, not the, you know, the physical stuff, the athleticism. But if you look at the real yoga, the idea of going deeply to the deepest level of consciousness, the, the epistemological breakthrough of understanding that since whatever we know or think we know, we know through consciousness, and therefore the first object of study has to be the instrument through which you study everything else. It's like if you don't know there's a scratch on your uh, telescope lens, you're gonna start seeing scratches on all the different planets and stars. So, so, so the idea is that anything you study, you study with consciousness, so first study consciousness. So in terms of the deepest psychology, linguistic, in, in terms of the, the, let's say, the scholarly field of linguistics, India, uh, it's safe to say, was literally thousands of years ahead of the rest of the world. I mean, up until, up until Sanskrit grammar was discovered by Europeans, it's kind of like the official theory of why there's so many languages in the world was the Tower of Babel. And so in India, I mean, the modern academic field of linguistics, the modern academic field of linguistics came from the discovery of ancient Sanskrit grammar, which was thoroughly scientific. If you look at the Sanskrit alphabet, it's actually a scientific phonological chart. It's not A, B, C. I mean, what is A? A is a diphthong. It's, 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 it's a dual vowel. And then B is just a, you know, a soft labial consonant with a, uh, with the, with the vowel E, and then C, which is a sibilant. In other words, it's just phonologically, it's just totally out of control. But in India, they had, they actually had the science of linguistics thousands of years before the rest of the world, of Aryabhata, 
astronomer and scientist, one of the inventors of trigonometry. Obviously, bright guy. <laughs> In fact, I mean, things like sine, cosine, that's about, that's all I remember from high school trigonometry, sine, cosine. But anyway, actually um, come from Sanskrit jargon, mathematical jargon through Arabic as, as the value zero. There could be no computers. There could be no computing without zero, which also comes from India. And so if you look at India, you know, some of the first great universities, I mean, consider the level of religious tolerance in India, where Buddhism and Jainism, which, by the way, was just as important as Buddhism in India thousands of years ago, um, you could have these religions that explicitly reject the holy books of the whole civilization, and yet no one killed them. They just had philosophical debates. You know, they fought, but philosophically. And so you have this extraordinary uh, freedom. You have freedom of speech. If you go to the Mahabharata, you find that, for example, when the world believed wrongly that the Pandavas had died in a terrible fire in their house in uh, Varnavata, then just common people went to the center of the city, Hastinapur, the imperial capital, and were just insulting the king. That was not against the law. They weren't like, you know, tortured in the most horrible ways, cut into little pieces and fed to jackals. Rather, what you f find is Dhritarashtra, the blind king, saying to his son, who's really the power, Duryodhana, that we better be careful, the people are going to throw us out of office. So in other words, it, it's clear from the Bhagavatam, from the Mahabharata, that there was, re you, there was freedom of speech. It was perfectly legal and tolerated could criticize the government. The burden was on the government to provide proper service for the people. So you have freedom of speech, you have freedom of religion, you have uh, animal rights. Slavery does, it's interesting because slavery, the, the first great empire that abolished slavery outside of India that we know about was uh, the first great Persian Empire, led by Cyrus the Great, about two and a half thousand years ago. This is very interesting, uh, because Cyrus the Great, the first great Persian emperor, abolished slavery and declared uh, religious freedom. So in the Old Testament, in the Jewish Old Testament, Cyrus the Great is called a messiah. Anyway, you have to know what the word means in Hebrew, Messiah, the whole Hebrew tradition of what a messiah is. Basically, it means a political, a military leader, a king that, that saves the Jewish people at a time when they're oppressed by a greater power. That, that's a whole other story and how the word was kind of appropriated by the Christian church and used in a different way. So, because the Jews were conquered by Babylonia and, and, and forced out of Israel, their temple was destroyed, they lived in exile, they were oppressed, and then Cyrus conquered Babylonia, sent them back to Israel, and even gave a nice donation uh, to rebuild their temple. So he's called a messiah. Now, the interesting thing about this extraordinary figure was one of the few emperors in history that was actually respected everywhere in the world. The extraordinary thing about him, first of all, is that he spoke a dialect of Sanskrit. First interesting fact. Actually, he spoke a dialect of older Vedic Sanskrit because the ancient Persian language, as in the literature of the Avesta, the Avestan language is actually a dialect of Vedic Sanskrit. And his name wasn't really Cyrus. Cyrus is just the anglicizing of his name in English. 
in his own Sanskritic language, his name was actually Kuru, which as you know, is a very typical common name for Vedic kings. So, um, anyway, it's, I could go on and on and on, but, but the point here is that we are not trying to, I mean, why would we deny or conceal the fact that probably the greatest civilization in history in terms of human rights, in terms of freedom. I mean, in America, America has not yet figured out how, how to have a lot of freedom and not be completely vulgar and barbaric. In fact, now there is probably one of the most extraordinarily vulgar presidential candidates in, in American history who's actually getting votes. So, you know, America, we're proud of our freedom in general in the West, but we've not yet figured out how to be free and ladies and gentlemen at the same time. Because the level of vulgarity, of obscenity, of narcissism, when I was growing up, narcissism was considered not a good thing. Now it's a great thing. What's remarkable about India is that they had all this freedom and yet they were civilized. They, were, they actually had spiritual values. So this combination of freedom and profound spiritual values is I think perhaps the greatest achievement in the history of human civilization. Although they did not have iPads. So we may have to rethink what I just said. So, so this is not, I mean, this is hardly India bashing. I'm making a very different point. The point I'm making is that if you look at the external culture of India, like the kurta, which is of course a Muslim word, and, and which nothing, I mean, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but it, it, it you know, originally was a Muslim shirt, which was adopted in India. If you look at Hindi, for example, just like English, with other influences like Church Latin and Scandinavian, but basically English is a combination of Germanic and Romance languages. So for everything, there's a, there's a, there's a like a Latin way to say things in English and a German way. Like you can say all good, which is totally German. All gut, you can say all good, or you can say uh, omnibenevolent, which is just pure Latin. You can say all strong, which is German, or you can say omnipotent, which is Latin. You can say mansion, like maison in French, or you can say house, which is German. So just as English is a combination of Romance and Germanic languages, Hindi is a combination of Arabic and Muslim languages and, um, and Sanskrit languages. So for example, you can say, if you want to say boy, you can say Kumara, which is Sanskrit, or you can say Larka, which comes from the other side of the Sindhu River. So. <laughs> <laughs> So if you look at India's languages, if you look at the dress, if you look at the cuisine, I mean, if, if people say, well, Krishna only likes you know, certain preparations from India, then it's, it's very interesting that Krishna has a, 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 a real preference for Turkish food. Because, I mean, all kinds of things like kofta and halava and so, so if you look at Indian cuisine, if you look at Indian dress, if you look at Indian language, Music, we know that if you look at, if you look at the musicology, you look at the history of Indian music, because Indian music, unlike in the West, at least unlike in the West coming into the, even like the Baroque period or even the late Renaissance period of music, what you find is in India, 
uh, they great value is placed on improvisation. In other words, they didn't write the music down. The West, they wrote it down. And so there's was, was emphasis on improvisation. And, but when you do that, when you don't write the music down, you're not really sure what people are playing, let's say, 100 years ago. You can have legends or myths about it, but like, what did music sound like in India thousands of years ago? We don't really know. So, uh, and we know that since the Mughal Empire and even earlier the Delhi Sultanate, that um, the Muslim leaders of North India uh, very much preferred and, and, and favored Muslim musicians. And that's why the Indian, Indian classical music basically became dominated by Muslim musicians because they were given preference. And so we have a situation where Indian classical music ha has been dominated in, in many aspects of it, at least in North India, uh, not even by, by Hindu musicians. I'm, I'm not judging this. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm, this, these are just historical facts. So the idea that we, when we look at India or North India or East India or Bengal or Madhava or Uttar Pradesh or anywhere, the idea that we're just looking through this transparent lens into thousands of years ago, we're looking back in time. And so however Indians dress today, however they eat, whatever they cook, whatever kind of music they make and, and, and their language, this is all just a window into pure Vedic culture. Uh, it's a nice dream, but I think it has very little to do with history. I think it has very little to do with known history and it has very little to do with Shastra. If you actually read Vaidika Shastra, Vedic, you know, Vedic Shastras, they don't really talk about this. In fact, if you read the Bhagavatam, there seems to be almost no concern whatsoever with dress style, recipes, music style. There are certain descriptive, but there's descriptive and normative. Descriptive is just that's what's going on, whereas normative is what the way it should be. And so to take every descriptive statement in, in, in the scripture as normative is, uh, is, is actually irrational. First of all, because take, for example, the culture, the extra, the culture we see described in Mahavarata. So basically, I mean, for those who are interested in, in Indian history and culture and Hinduism, the, the, the world of Mahavarata, let me push this back a little bit. Just, uh, before I uh, get all cramped here. If we look at the culture of the Mahabharata, which is like quintessentially the image of what Vedic culture was, but Krishna himself in the Bhagavad Gita, at the beginning of chapter four says that evam parampara praptamimang raja shayobidu sakali neha mahata yoganashta, the actual spiritual science, the actual spiritual culture has been lost. The actual spiritual culture has been lost. Further, um, we know from Shastra that when Krishna comes to this world, he adopts the culture he finds there. So, for example, if you look at how Krishna dressed 5,000 years ago, how did Krishna dress and, and just what were his customs and just in terms of you know observable behavior. And then if you look at Lord Chaitanya 500 years ago, it's a very different culture. The intellectual issues are completely different. The spiritual issues are different. The cultural issues are different. It's a different world. It's a very different world. 
And Lord Chaitanya, what does he do? He adopts. He takes sannyasa from Mayavad Sampradaya. He, he actually adopts to the, to the world as it is when he comes down. So therefore, what I suggest is, and I'm going to end at this point, and then I'm just going to make say one thing, and then the initiation, is that Krishna does give in Bhagavad Gita a cultural criteria for like, you know, how should you eat? How should you dress? How should you, what should our external... Krishna gives a criterion in the Gita, but it's not ethnic. It's not ethnic. It's actually rational. Krishna says you should do everything in sattva guna, in the mode of goodness. So what Krishna says in Gita, Krishna never says, you know, offer me kafta balls and olive What Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita is offer me food in the mode of goodness. Sattva gun, sattvika bhojana in Indian language. And as explained in 424, the Gita, Brahmarpanam Brahmahavir, in the act of offering to Krishna, that so-called material thing is transformed into a spiritual object. So when you take objects in goodness, virtuous, like food, which is obtained without cruelty, cruelty-free food, when you dress in a way which is decent and virtuous, you, that's called sattva. Now, when you purify it by offering it to Krishna, it becomes shuddha sattva, purified goodness, which is, in Vaishnav jargon, how you say spiritual. So the definition that Krishna gives, thank God, in Bhagavad Gita, the definition of spiritual is not ethnic, it's rational. It's logical. And therefore, it constitutes a spiritual science and not an ethnic chauvinism. And that's actually what we're supposed to be teaching. That's why the Hindus are so fabulously successful in the Western world, because they're smart and because they knew how to adapt. So what Krishna is actually teaching is spiritual science, a spiritual science. So if I wear Western clothes that are sattvika, in other words, they're decent and clean and all that, and someone wears Indian clothes that are decent and clean and all that, you know, sattva equals sattva. How can you say this sattva is better than that sattva? It's just like, you know, it starts to get really silly. And so in terms of our music, in terms of our food, in terms of our dress, all these things, they should be sattvika. They should be virtuous. They should be decent. And we should offer them to Krishna. That is the spiritual science. And when we really start presenting that spiritual science in the Western world, we may actually get somewhere we may actually become an important movement. We, we may even become relevant in the Western world. If we give people a true spiritual science and allow them to practice that spiritual science in their own culture. That's what Krishna West is about. And... Uh, so like us on Facebook. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm personally not on Facebook. So So, um, thank you all very much for coming. You've all been very patient. I am a little uh Dirga Vayuvika, which in Sanskrit means long winded tonight. So um, anyway, I'm very proud of Govinda Sundara. 
and his mother Glani, and his wife Ananda. And so now we're going to do the uh, just the initiation. Actually, in Prabhupada, when I was a, a grihasta, I was a grihasta, briefly, and I was temple president in Gainesville. And Prabhupada visited us. He came to Gainesville and spoke at the University of Florida, and he did initiations. And for various reasons, he weren't able to do the fire sacrifice, but he just gave the initiations. The sacrifice done later. So, so Prabhupada himself did it this way sometimes. So Govinda Sundara. Uh, we're closing the gates here, so you. This is your last chance to get off the flight. Okay, so. <laughs> oh, you brought them. Well, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Please thank her for me. Hello. So, so what are the four principles that you promised? By the way, the word devotee. Obviously, it comes from the Latin devoto, which and voto in, in Latin means vow, like you vote for someone, you vow yourself someone, or a votary. And so devoto in Latin literally means one who lives according to a vow. And so now Govinda Sundra is taking this diksha, this initiation vow. Oh. Yes. So linguistically or semantically, in, in, in the act of making a, a spiritual vow, one literally becomes a devotee. One uh, lives according to one's vow. In Sanskrit, this is a common way that uh, good people are praised in the Bhagavatam or Mahabharata called dridhavrata, those who keep their vows or firm in their vows. Wow, Gardenia. Steal that one at first. So. So now the vote, Val, so what are the four principles you promised for the, uh, the, the don'ts? No meat eating, no intoxication, and no gambling, and that's it. And positively? Uh, chanting 16 rounds of the Hare Krishna Mahamantra daily. Very good. So uh, now the name. So Govinda Sundara will be Sri Govinda. Sri Govinda. Oh, the beads. Where are the beads? I have to give you the beads. There you go. Sri Govinda. Hare Krishna. Yes, he's he's a devotee his entire life. And I said, with, as I said, with a wonderful mother who is also very very serious devotee of Krishna. So, any questions on these points? Yes. You mentioned the three fundamental things that uh, one should understand, such as living entities, God, material nature. So, how does one begin to live? Well, uh, if you bow down to God, then you start to understand that you're not God. It's, it's a way of acknowledging that there's someone much greater than me. So one can bow to God. And by using material things, beginning with your own body, in Krishna's service, then you begin to understand that this body is just meant to serve Krishna. And by accepting Krishna, because we're part of Krishna, so by accepting Krishna, you see that I'm part of God. 
I'm an integral part. That's how they translate. We say part and parcel in Old English. In, in I know in Spanish, Portuguese, they translated that. I think parte integral, parte integral, like a, an integral part. So um, by practical service, by acting as if it were true. For example, it's like push starting a car, like, like you know, the motor dies. And then you, you can push the car and, and then just sort of get the engine going. And so if you, for example, think of like, like a typical type of physical therapy where you're regaining the use, let's say, of some part of your body that was injured or whatever. Then you, by actually, let's say, moving your arm or your hand, your leg, by, by moving it in the same way it naturally moves, so to speak, the body remembers that function. You know, you retrain. So, so because as, as Lord Chaitanya said, Nitya Siddha Krishna Prema Sadhya Kabunai, that this love of God, this Krishna consciousness is intrinsic. It's, 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 it's innate. And it's there in all of us. So when you begin to act upon it, then you, so to speak, revive. As Socrates, or actually really Plato, with Socrates as a speaker, there, there's a dialogue, Platonic dialogue called the Mino. Where they were, uh, they talk about remembering truth. Socrates, in his arguments, tries to prove that actually we have knowledge within us; we just have to reawaken it. And so that's the idea: the knowledge is there. You have to awaken it. So the the process of bhakti yoga reawakens this knowledge, and because it's natural for the soul, it becomes increasingly natural to you. When you're doing therapy, and and let's say uh, perfectly under ordinary circumstances, what would be a perfectly natural movement? of bodily limb uh, may be painful or may, you know, maybe a struggle, but because it's natural, you know, eventually, hopefully, you'll regain that natural movement. And um, just playing devil's advocate. Go ahead. I will, I will go to battle against the devil. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the Mentions there that um, an important says an important detail after the wearing kilos for purification of those that see kilos. What is? Well, it doesn't say those who see. I mean, probably may have added that, but in an Indian context, tila. You know, everyone knows, like like for example, married women wear the stop sign, <laughs> and you know so. So everyone knows what these things mean. It's an effective communication. If you wear Vaishnav Tilak in, in a Hindu context, it, it's an effective way to communicate. In a Western context, it's not an effective way to communicate. It actually you know, convinces a lot of people you're a little, well, at best, very eccentric. And so it's not that we give up Tilak. I mean, I, you know, we use Tilak, but uh, appropriately. And even Prabhupada approved this. Prabhupada strongly approved that for the sake of communicating with people at different times and places, we may or may not use these things in a particular situation. It's, a, it's about effectively communicating. I, mean, I remember when Tamal Krishna, one of Prabhupada's great disciples, went to, he went to China. This was in 1976 or something. You know, China was, I mean, communist China was really hardcore back then. And he let his, he was a sannyasi, but he let his hair grow out, and he, you know, wore Western clothes, and Prabhupada thought it was great. Prabhupada loved it, because it worked. 
you know, if, if we if we get to the point where we're willing to let the world go to hell because, you know, we want to put a little mark on our head in every situation. I mean, Prabhupada, Prabhupada, no, Prabhupada, again, you need to read these papers are written and, and, and you know, there's, we, have to, we need to see all of Prabhupada. There's a very liberal side to Prabhupada, but unfortunately some conservative preachers have presented Prabhupada basically in their own image. That, that Prabhupada is just, you know, very conservative. Prabhupada is also very liberal, very open-minded. He says, ultimately, all we really care about is communicating effectively to people. That's what we really care about is getting the message across. Everything else is just meant to serve that, that, that purpose. Yes. Uh, three words. One is Nam, Nam, Nanam, Vijnanam. Oh, Gyanam, Vijnanam. And Jnayam. Gyayam. Or Jnayam. That be phonetic. Only Sanskrit teachers say Jnayam. But anyway. Gyayam. So, yes. Gyayam means it's called, it, it, it means that which is to be known. Right. It's called the gerundum grammar. So that which is to be known. Gyanam is knowledge. Vigyanam in, in sort of Vaishnav jargon is used to mean to realize the knowledge. Not just book knowledge, but realization of it. It's actually, of course, obviously cognate with the, uh, what is it, Latin or Greek, gnosis. Gnosis, gyanam, so that a uh, gnostic literally means one who doesn't know. <laughs> or, for example, diagnostic. It's like knowing in a certain way is, is a diagnosis. That gnosis, just gyanam. Prognosis, which is just pragyanam. Pro, pra, pragyanam. Christian talks about uses the word pragyan, Bhagavad Gita, prognosis. Yes. I have a question that regards Prabhupada. Yes. Um, you yourself personally knew him, but many people like me only know Prabhupada through the memories of others. And through his own teachings. And that his own words, especially yeah. they're all recorded. So. But uh, I'm just concerned. How will like devotees, future generations, be able to understand Prabhupada? Yes. The point I make is that I think, in one sense, future generations will understand him better than we do. I mean, for example. If you, let's say, you go to some high mountains, like I've had, I've had this experience so many times with the Rocky Mountains, where if you're driving through the Rocky Mountains, it's actually kind of a disappointment. At least the road, the interstate that goes from, you know, from, say, Utah to Denver, because the road is so high up, the interstate is so high that it's almost like driving through hills, like high hills. So, but then, let's say you get to the Denver side, just give one example. And then if you drive, let's say, 20 miles east of Denver, and then stop and look back, that's when you really get overwhelmed by the majesty of the Rocky Mountains. So sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. In a sense, future generations will have better perspective on Prabhupada than we do. If it were the case, if it were the case that really knowing Prabhupada depends on like physical contact with him or you know, actually having known him, then it would logically follow that 
every succeeding generation gets farther and farther away from Prabhupada, which would necessarily mean that the fate of the Hare Krishna movement is just, you know, annihilation. And, that, and that's certainly not what Prabhupada thought would happen. So Prabhupada used to say, Prabhupada once wrote a letter, I read it, where he said, you are not really seeing the guru. You're not seeing the actual form of the guru. You're seeing the external thing. So, so I, I think that future generations in some ways will understand Prabhupada more. It's because of their willingness and greater capacity to look back. And Perspective and also because ultimately what Krishna says in the Gita, Shraddhavan Labhate Jnanam, that one who has faith gets knowledge. And the word for faith there, which is not really the English word faith, because there's like there's a word astikyam in Sanskrit from the, from the word asti, he or it or he, she or it is, asti. You know, we, we, have, we have the same thing in German, ist, it's the same word, asti, ist, English, is, and so on. So from the word asti, he or she exists, or it exists, you have astikyam, which means believing that something exists. So there's a kind of faith which just means believing God exists. That's not what the word shraddha means. The word shraddha, which is often used to mean faith in Sanskrit, means really putting your heart into something. Really putting your placing your your trust and and and, and your heart in something. So What's pro, that word? Pardon. Oh, shraddha. Dha means to place, actually. Cognate with the English dumb D O M like <laughs> kingdom, freedom, that D O M is actually cognate with the Sanskrit dove. But that was a linguistic distraction. So the point is that Prabhupada is a spiritual master, and therefore uh, the reality of Krishna, the reality of Prabhupada is beyond time and space in a, in a very important sense. Obviously, Prabhupada appeared within material time and space and adjusted to the material time and space he was in and, you know, did things in this world. But ultimately, the spiritual truth of Prabhupada Krishna is, is not a material truth. And so anyone in any generation, just like Krishna appeared so long ago, but if we really are sincere in, in our bhakti, then we're with Krishna, like right now. So it's time and space cannot separate us from Krishna or Prabhupada. For me, yes. Uh, yeah, and Gita, Bhagavad Gita also uh, has said that control your indries. Your uh, control your indries, ten indries. Oh, indries. Yeah, indries. Yeah, senses. And uh, saints also say like that. Yes. For saints like you and other saints who are in this atmosphere, it's easy. But what do you suggest for the ordinary people to control that? Okay, few points on this. Number one, even a world teacher, Jagat Guru, in the Upadeshamrita, Rupa Goswami says that first verse, Vacho Vegam, Manasakrodha Vegam, Jiva Vegam, Udaropasto Vegam, Ethan Vegan, Jovishaheta Dira. That one who can control these impulses or urges of, he says, uh, the urge, you know, speaking, like speaking, just babbling unnecessarily, or not controlling your tongue, your speech, saying things you shouldn't say. Manasa, uh, or the impulses of the mind, or manasa, crowed of the impulse of anger, jiwa, the tongue, to eat. And, uh, and then udaropasta, the belly, you know, the, to eat, and, the, and then lust, you know, sex desire. So what, what Rupa Goswami says here is that etan vegan, these impulses, etan vegan jo visheta, one who can 
tolerate them. Jyotishahita dira is a is a dira, a, a, a wise person, and sarvanga pimang pativinsa shisha. Literally, that person can instruct the entire world. So. That means if you have a material body, the body has momentum. It's, it's like if you're driving your car and you take your foot off the gas, the car doesn't just stop. It keeps going. It's momentum. So our, our material desires have momentum. So even though one may take up a spiritual practice, the body and mind have their momentum. So Rupa Goswami says one who can tolerate them. Now, as far as tolerating them, Krishna also says in Bhagavad Gita, in that famous verse, that... Uh, um, Visaya vinivartante nirahadasyadehinam that among embodied beings like us, souls and bodies, that uh, the sense objects, all the stuff out there we want to enjoy, the sense objects, vinivartante, they, they go away, they, they, they recede. If nirahadasya, for one who's fasting, nirahara, not eating. And we know, for example, if you look at monastic history, the history of monasticism, you know, Christian, Buddhist, or other religions, what you or Hindu, what you find is that fasting is always sort of a big deal because let's say you're a monk in some monastery and you're falling in love with, you know, some lady. So stop eating, you know, because just like starve it, you know, you just don't eat and you become so weak, you just like, you, that's a lot, you can't think about it because you're just... So... <laughs> So the idea of kind of like debilitating material desires by fasting is a common strategy in the history of, you know, people who are trying to give up the world. Yes, but, wait, 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 didn't finish. I have to finish this. Now comes the punchline. So Krishna says, But rasa the sense objects go away, but not the, the desire, the taste for it. Rasa varjam. The rasa, the taste. In other words, let's say I'm trying to, you know, be celibate, and so I fast, so so that my, you know, I, the, the lust will diminish. All it takes is one good meal, and I'm back in action. <laughs> because because that lust, that sex desire, is still there. You know, first good meal I have, and you know, I'm out there again. So, so Krishna says, rasa varjang. But upon experiencing, literally upon seeing something greater, even the taste is lost. For example, I, I suppose when you were young, like everybody else, you had toys or games, and we were attached to our toys and games, and by degrees, you could say, we matured, we grew up, and you just stopped taking your toys out of the closet one day. You know, it's, I don't know if there's like some day that you... You know, memorialized or something, but you out when you grow, you outgrow. To grow is to outgrow, and so what Krishna says is that we Krishna is not he's not teaching renunciation; he's teaching spiritual growth. And when you grow spiritually, you outgrow lesser things. So, so it's it's not about you know obsessing over our sins. I mean, we're we have our human condition. We are in human bodies, and that's, you know, you know what humans are like. <laughs> so, if you have a human body, you've got problems. <laughs> Isn't it? However, the good news is, the good news is that um, 
if we so rather than focus on giving up this giving up that, i mean obviously we have to be civilized and not just you know like uh, monsters and barbarians but but if you focus on growing spiritually for example by chanting god's names without offense if we focus on spiritual growth sincerely we will outgrow our bad habits so that's the secret focus on your spiritual growth deal okay <laughs> so anything else yes um your class was extremely brilliant and uh, extremely high level of respect you give your audience um and that's really part of the culture you're trying to bring to people and, um, and that's perfectly beautiful um and because i haven't done that so boldly or intelligently a thought comes to my mind that maybe that might attract the super intelligentsia but i'm not saying you, you i'm asking this question to find out i just don't know but it's a thought that maybe for the masses they a different dose maybe more appropriate but i'm just wondering how do you i think in general yeah i mean obviously if i was speaking to let's but, say I'm referring to yeah. not necessarily this class. I'm yeah. referring to your presentation of Krishna. I and getting people yeah, really to think, yeah. which is wonderful. That's Prabhupada great. placed great emphasis, great emphasis, constantly on attracting intelligent people. It's simply a simple. It's it's a simple fact. It's sociology one a. That if you that if, if the Hare Krishna movement attracts competent, intelligent, serious people those competent, intelligent, serious people will find a way to engage everybody else. Whereas if you start out at the other end of the social pyramid, you stay there. And, 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 there you stay, and, and that's the end of it. And that's why Prabhupada strategically always emphasized that this movement will only succeed that we can somehow or other attract, you know, reasonable people. If we care about everyone. We want, you know, we, we want to help everyone. But there's a sequence, like you're building an engine. You've got to put this part first and then that part. And, and, and of course, if, if I happen to talk to someone, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of gregarious by nature. So when I'm taking my walks, I walk miles every day. I get into conversations with, you know, truck drivers and gardeners and university professors and everybody. And I, and I just try to talk to them in a way that, you know, makes sense to them. So yes, we should certainly be appropriate. We should, whomever we meet, we should speak to them in a way that's, that, that makes sense to them. Of course we should do that. But um, at the same time, there are priorities. Reactions. What's that? You're not getting a violent reaction? No, it's exactly the opposite. That's exactly That's the opposite. I, I, I find the reaction just extraordinarily positive. I, you know, it's the people like to be treated as adults, if they actually are adults. Yes? Maharaj, answer this question also. Yes. That's why we have got the Bhakti Vikshatya. Yes. In Austin, there are three, four Bhakti Mikshatya. 
going on. Yes. And one of them is right over here. Many of, many of them are, you know, the devotees, they come over here and they learn about it. You know, they have got interest, enthusiasm to learn. Depend upon how we present Krishna to, to them. And yes. we don't have a present. Krishna would present himself to them once they'll come to know Krishna. You have to just generate the love. Yes, I, sh I should mention that uh, to express my own appreciation for all the good work you're doing. And uh, Sri Govinda now, former Govinda Sundra, Sri Govinda and Leela Nanda, they're now living here. And of course, they look forward to cooperating with you. And they, and they are going to focus on that Western preaching. It's like a team. You know, people play different. It's like in cricket. People have different positions. But it's all the same team. Any other question anybody has got? We are now in time. So Remember that if you ask a question, you're delaying your own prasadam. <laughs> <laughs> so, Prabhu. And everybody else's, actually. Let you go and everybody will follow. Actually, why don't we, why don't we, what are we doing now? What's uh, the... Oh, yes. And then while we're taking prasadam, if anyone has a question, you can always come up and yes. ask. But one thing is, you know, um, the prasad is the mercy of Krishna. See that whatever you take, don't throw away. Don't waste any prasad. Take as much as you can take by yourself. But don't try to please throw any prasad. It is the mercy of Krishna. Yes. So thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. And thank all of you on Ustream. Hare Krishna.